So I don't know uh, if you guys watch the news. Uh, I actually have stopped watching the news. There's a very simple reason for that. It depresses me. Uh, I, I've wa- I, I grew up watching the news every night. You know, I'd get up, get up, go and sit down at 10.30 at night and just watch the national for a good hour every night. And unfortunately, it just got really depressing after a while because the world is kind of a messed up place. I don't know if you've noticed this. I mean, we can kind of pretend that it's not from time to time. We can sit in a bubble and pretend that, you know, the rest of the world is, you know, just out there. And I do that too by not watching the news. But the world isn't doing well generally. In fact, if you talk to most of the people out there who don't believe in Jesus and uh, believe that there could be no possible good God anywhere, the main reason, the number one reason that people will say there is no God is because the world is really messed up. Things are going wrong all the time. And if it wasn't enough that the outside world has all these problems, let's face it, we have these problems too. Uh, We have disagreements, arguments with each other. We say rather silly things about one another behind closed doors. We spread stories as if they're true and they're not. And then we cause other people to hate one another. We as a people are kind of messed up too. But it gets even worse than that. This morning, before church today, I mean, it's what? It's, what, almost, it's almost noon. I have, um, I have broken every single one of the cardinal sins. You know, the seven deadly sins that people talk about? I, I went through it in my mind earlier today. I've broken all of them. Maybe not physically, but in my mind, Every single one of them. Because I'm messed up. Something's wrong with me. And, And why would I start an Advent sermon talking about Christmas, talking about all of the good things, you know, the happy, smiley things that are Christmas, with this kind of setup? Because, I mean, isn't Christmas that one part of the year where we can pretend that things aren't terrible and then that you know the, that everything is going well and that we can have you know sing christmas carols and joy to the world and you know we'll, we'll we'll pretend that wars don't happen we'll pretend that hatreds don't happen we'll pretend the sin in our hearts isn't there and 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 I think there's a very real and good reason why we need to actually look at this kind of negative thing before for advent the simple fact is I think we as a people tend to put our hope in the wrong place. And this, the first week of Advent, is usually talked about as a week of hope. That's actually what we're looking at here. And we do have hope. Let's be clear. The world has hope. They just have hope in a lot of things that tend to fail them. I don't know if you noticed, Fidel Castro died this week. I do still read Twitter feeds. And he's the head of the communist revolution in Cuba. He was hoping that he would overthrow the government of Cuba and create a communist utopia in Cuba. 
Uh, well, and, and I mean, you know, if you go to the beaches in Cuba, it's pretty idyllic. But let's face it, it's not utopia. There aren't people all over the world just clamoring to move to Cuba today. Because that methodology didn't work. We had an election a few weeks ago. Half of the United States, our neighbors to the south, are completely amazed that the new savior has been named. And the other half are completely devastated that their new savior was rejected. And it didn't, didn't matter who, was, who won. It's going to be the same situation anyway. People trust in politicians. People even trust in religion. I hope none of us are doing this, but some people come to church hoping that this will make everything in the world better, that showing up at church on Sunday, you know, singing a few songs every Sunday, making sure that your Bible has been, you know, read, and if not just read, you know, memorized, and imagining that that's going to make everything in the world better. Uh, as a guy who, at least part-time, gets paid to read the Bible... Uh, let me tell you, that doesn't actually work, because like I said, I'm pretty messed up myself. But people can trust in religion. People will trust in any number of things. And the point of Advent, the point of the entire Advent season, this period leading up to Christmas, is to make sure that we put our hope in the right place. You see, we as believers are lovers of truth. We, 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 uh, we say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We trust in Jesus, so we are trusting in the truth. We say that we love the truth. So when we talk about hope, we need to be clear that our hope isn't in things that don't fulfill. We don't want the kind of hope that shuts down reality. Uh, that's what the rest of the world accuses us in the church of doing, pretending that the real world doesn't exist and that science doesn't exist and that you know, all these negative things don't exist. What I'm saying is that the gospel of Jesus Christ and our focus on Jesus Christ and, well, what our hope should be is based in truth. You see, Advent is designed to make us look towards the place where our hope needs to be, namely Jesus Christ. Advent actually comes from a Latin word, Adventus. It's a translation of a Greek word, parousia. Now, if you're a theologian or have spent way too much time reading, you know, end-time books, you know that parousia refers to the end of, uh, end of days. It's referring to the time when Jesus returns finally and all things are made right. Sorry, getting ahead of myself there. It's about coming. You see, Advent isn't, it means coming. It means that the time when we, have, we talk about the coming of Christ. Notice I say the coming of Christ. If I go to the mall right now and I buy an Advent calendar, most people are going to tell me that uh, the, the Advent calendar counts down the days to Christmas. When in fact, Advent is about thinking about the coming of of Christ. We remember the coming of Christ at Christmas, but we, we're not aiming at Christmas, we're aiming at Christ. And in fact, Advent isn't just talking about Christmas. It isn't talking about baby in a manger and all that kind of thing. It's talking about the coming of Christ, 
not just in the past, but also in the future. To see what God has done in the past, look through the thing that he has done in the past, and place our hope in the right place and looking to the future. And that's important because that is the only message that's going to be helpful in this time, in this world that we live in. I mean, things are pretty good for Canada in the 21st century. I mean, you know, I've got an iPhone in my pocket. I've got the totality of human knowledge available to me at any, at any moment. I've got a nice car. I've got a nice house. And let's face it, according to the government of Canada, I live under the poverty line. And I've got tons of great stuff. So that means that Canada is doing pretty darn well. But I mean, if you look at the news, there are lots of, lots of storm clouds on the horizon. Uh, we don't know how long the government is going to be okay with us as Christians. We don't know how long the, econ- uh, the economy is going to go well in Newfoundland. I'm told the bottom's going to fall out of it very soon. And uh, I... Uh, yeah, I have uh, I have a friend Daniel who you know continually depresses me about the future of Newfoundland. Uh, it, it's an econom- he's an econometrician, which is kind of like uh, economists that just had a few extra letters to put out of Scrabble. Um, and economists are part of the dismal science, so he is it, it is he, he's okay. He comes by it naturally to depress people, but sorry, Daniel. It's just, but I mean, it's, it is the fact that, the, that things are possibly going wrong in the future, and we can see it. And it's not good for us to simply pretend that the world is great. Um, that's what politicians are paid to do, pretend the world is great. We don't want to be doing that. And you see, what the prophecy that I'll be dealing with today from Isaiah chapter 42 was written at specifically a time like this. It's great to be able to turn us to who Jesus Christ is, specifically from the prophecy of Isaiah. He's going to be writing about the servant. Most of the last part of Isaiah is about the servant. And we know through the Bible that those prophecies are about Jesus Christ. But it is written in a different time than ours, but very similar in a lot of ways. If you go back to Isaiah 38 and 39, you can read about a guy named Hezekiah, the king of the last actual king of Judah, well, the la- one of the last, there's a few near the end who, you know, they, the puppet kings that the Babylonians throw in there. But he does something very foolish. And because of the foolish thing he did, God pronounces judgment on Judah and says, your people, some of your sons, are going to be sold into the, pl- to the land of Babylon. They'll be eunuchs in the king of Babylon's court. And Hezekiah, being a fairly small-minded man, says this is a good thing because it won't happen in my time. And I mean, that, that, that's something that a lot of Christians say sometimes here. You know, well, you know, things might be going wrong and maybe there'll be persecution in the future. Maybe difficulties will happen, but it's a good thing because it won't happen in my lifetime. Well, Hezekiah said that. And of course, that was a couple of thousand years ago. So we've had a lot of things since then. And Isaiah is given a message from God. 
He's told by God about this servant that will be sent to, to the people. And essentially the idea is to turn us to a hope in God. Let's, I'm going to again read the passage. I know we've already read it once, but I just want, I want to hear it again. Repetition aids learning. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And every word of this prophecy is valuable. Let's just look at a few things that it says. Now it talks about, it has two parts. You'll notice there's a first part that talks about the servant, and then there's a second part that talks a lot more about God, God directly from what he's saying. So that I'm going to do this in two parts. I'm going to talk about, first of all, the servant's role. What is God actually promising? And then I'm going to tell you why we should believe it. Because it's said by the God who said it. So first of all, the servant's role. The servant is, well, you'll, you'll see in a lot of passages about the servant, you, there's a passage a little further called the suffering servant that you'll read about generally in Christmas area, areas or more likely in, uh, around Easter. But for this point, the first and most important thing and the thing that spends a, that's a lot of time is spent talking about is that the servant opposes injustice. He makes sure that justice comes to pass. And now I have to be careful here because when I say the word justice in churches, there's two equal and opposite errors that Christians fall into hearing the word justice. Either we imagine that justice is kind of talking about this communal thing out in the world. We use this word term called social justice. Uh, we imagine that you know this is about making sure that whales are happy and that you know we have uh, a safe environment and that you know all kinds of human rights all over the world are are, are accepted, and and it is that. Let's be clear, it is that. <laughs> Justice is a good thing in that communal thing. But a lot of times when we focus on that, we ignore the other facet. That's the facet that the other group of us tend to focus on, namely personal injustice. And that God will 
place God is just in the sense that he punishes personal sin. And you know, some guy will get up in a pulpit like this one and hammer home how, you know, you need, God is just and you need to repent of your sins because if God comes and gives you, gives you justice, the hammer's going to come down and things are going to be terrible for you. And that's true too, because God is just and justice will reign. But let's face it, justice is both of these things. You see, justice talks about having right relationships with people, with God, even within yourself. You see, all sin is unjust. All of it. Every last sin you do is unjust. And I would say both to humans, but more importantly to God. But all of it does it. Don't believe me? You think that it's not unjust when... I think poorly of my neighbor when I allow bitterness to hamper my viewpoint of everything that they say and do? How is that just? It's unjust when I I think poorly of people when when I don't need to. It's unjust when I when I think that I need things more than I do. It's unjust when I demand from other people that they give me things that I don't, I don't need. It's unjust when I look with envy at my brother or my sister at the things they have or the lifestyle they have. It's unjust because I did nothing to gain all that stuff. And I don't know, maybe they did, but it's between them and God. And more importantly, it's unjust for me to imagine that absolutely anything that I have or could do is mine because it's all from God. And the servant opposes injustice. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. You see, the other thing is we all... We all dislike injustice unless it's our own. Uh, I mean, if if I'm driving on the road and somebody just goes a little bit too slowly to make that turn to go somewhere, I get angry because he slowed me down by five minutes and I deserve, it's just for me to be able to go further because, you know, the law says he has to turn a little bit faster. Don't, Don't block traffic for me. I, I, if I was a kid, most children say, what, what, one of the first phrases they seem to use all the time, but daddy, it's not fair. We all hate injustice. And yet we ourselves, as I said, are unjust. We don't have right relationships with one another. We are, <laughs> we have personal sin and We have bad community sometimes, actually most times, actually all the time. Yet, God promises that there will come a day when this will no longer be the case. Today, injustice rules. Today, my heart even rebels against God. At some level, I hate that. Today, 
there are people who don't know Jesus. Today, there are people who don't have enough food to eat or enough water to drink. Today, today lots of things are wrong, but that will not always be the case because the servant will be coming and the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. In fact, it goes further, further on down. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He will be relentless in bringing justice. There will be a day when there will be no more tears, where there will be nothing wrong, where our relationships will be right, where... I have this problem with myself. I, I don't have great facial expressions. People always misinterpret what I'm thinking. It's, it's, it's kind of funny if it, is, if it wasn't kind of frustrating for me. But there's going to be a day when people are actually going to get what I'm saying. <laughs> they're actually going to understand what, how I feel. And they're not going to look at my face and misunderstand everything I'm doing. Think I'm angry because I'm not when I'm not. The, the, the servant will come and things will be right. But it's it, all evil will be gone. All injustice will be gone. There will come a day when the servant will make all things right, and yet he will make all things right in gentleness. Notice, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This servant loves you. He cares for you. This servant, if you have but a small burning wick, just this, I don't know if you've ever seen a faintly burning wick, I have them all the time at my house because I like candles and this little tiny thing that's just barely a little red thing and he will not quench it. If that's the only amount of justice, if that's the only amount of love for God you have, he won't quench that. He will bring forth justice while keeping all of the good things around and, and active and valuable. He is going to not break a bruised reed. Friends, I don't know. I'm not a perfect person, and I've already said that. Have you ever felt that, you know, you're worried that, some, that you can't really take coming to God because God would, would make you hurt more than you possibly could? I mean, I have things that are wrong in me, and I'm, I'm always worried that other people are going to see them and then point them out, and then I'm going to feel hurt. I'm going to feel terrible. And, then, and I'm so afraid to come before other people to bring that forward because I'm afraid that they're going to be harsh about it. And in their harshness, I'm going to feel terrible and, and I'm going to lose what little good I have. That's not this servant. This servant will not quench a burning, a burning wick or break a bruised reed. He opposes injustice in gentleness. And there's some implications for this when you recognize that justice is going to pass. Just two implications just on this side. First of all, where we are victims, 
where there are people hurting you right now, where you feel that you are misheard or misunderstood or hated unjustly, know that this will pass. It won't be forever. Where you see things going on in the world where people are being hurt or under, uh, uh, kept under or oppressed, and you, you have tears because you see these children being oppressed poorly, it will pass. It may not be true tonight. It may not be true today that everything will be right, but there will come a day when all things will be right. But also, on the flip side, where we're trusting in our injustice, where I'm grasping on to my bitterness, where my bitterness is the thing that's making me happy, where my anger or envy or lusts or whatever is making me happy, know that too will pass. Friends, place your hope where it needs to be. Because things will pass. Injustice will go away. But the, So the servant opposes injustice. The servant also opens blind eyes. He opens blind eyes. As it says here, um, I, give you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Friends, there will come a day, and, and he's not just talking about physical blindness, though he is talking about that too. He is talking about blindness generally. If you want, just look at Luke 2, 29, and 30, 29 to 32. These are the words of a guy named Simeon. Just as he sees Jesus. You'll, we'll hear this again, don't worry, during uh, Christmas or Lent, or Advent, sorry. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared for before the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to your people Israel. Notice, when back in Isaiah, he talked about, uh, G, uh, about the servant, it said that he would be a light to the nations. And it also said that he would bring, he would open the eyes of the blind. Simeon, who uh, was waiting to see the coming, of Je- the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this servant, when he saw Jesus, recognized it, and saw in Jesus a light of revelation for the Gentiles. Yes, the, the, the benefit is, is physical, that the blindness will be removed. But more importantly, spiritual closed eyes are opened as well. The parallel comes very easily in John chapter 9, verse 39 to 41. Uh, now, this is apparently Pastor Steve's favorite story in, in the Gospel of John. This is about the man born blind. Don't know if you've heard the story before. Man, gets, man born blind gets healed by Jesus. He get, then people start seeing, hey, isn't he the man born blind? And he says, yeah, I was blind and now I'm seeing. And everybody is absolutely flipping out because blind people don't start seeing. I don't know if you know that. Generally speaking, 
especially blindness from birth. There's a whole bu- if you talk to medical people, there's a whole bunch of problems with actually getting your sight back if you've never had sight before. And yet this guy got his sight back. And so everybody's freaking out because they want to know how he got his sight back. And he says that this guy, Jesus, did it. He's never seen Jesus. Jesus healed him and went away. And yet, some people were so blind, and I mean spiritually, they make his blindness look pretty light by comparison. You see, the Pharisees didn't really want to believe in Jesus. They really didn't want to believe in Jesus. And so instead of believing in Jesus, they kept saying, well, you know, he couldn't have done anything good. He's a sinner. And then the blind man says, well, I don't know. I was blind and now I see. And so just after this whole story happens, Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who say may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, Jesus comes not just to bring light and understanding to, uh, doesn't come to just bring sight to blind people who physically, he comes to bring sight to blind people spiritually. He's offering it to the Pharisees. In fact, that blind man, Got to, see who, got to see the Savior Jesus, not just in the sense of, now I can see him physically, but in the sense of having faith. We talk about this generally uh, when we sing Amazing Grace. I was, once was blind, but now I see. It's a central line. But also, the servant comes to release prisoners. He comes to release prisoners. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 into 18. I say this, because, uh, I'm, uh, you can go there, I just have a bit of a thing to say before that. You see, there are prisoners that, in this world, and there's just, there are physical prisoners, and there are spiritual prisoners. And Jesus, the servant, comes to release prisoners. You see, our deepest problem isn't the, the prison of isn't the prisons that you know are physical, it's actually prisons of our own hearts. Romans 6, 15 to 18. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if, in the, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you who obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, who though you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient to the, to, from the heart, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Where we were once prisoners in sin and death, the servant comes to free us from that. We come, he comes to move us away from that, to allow us to see, to act righteously. As I said, I've broken most of the commandments today, even by noon. There will come a day when my sin will be no more. When I won't ever sin anymore. Where I will be done with the hatreds and lusts that I have in my heart that I wish would go away now. There will come a day when the servant will remove it all. 
And this sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds great for me to be able to stand up here and say to you from the book of Isaiah, an old, uh, an old, uh, old Testament prophet who tells us that all this stuff will be true, that you know, there will come a time when injustice will go away, when, when sin will be no more, when prisoners will be loosed, when your prison of sin and lust will be gone, when you will be able to see the truth, when people will be able to have relationship with one another, where sin will be no more. And that's great news, isn't it? But why should I believe it? I mean, why should the world actually care that I'm saying this stuff from the book of Isaiah? Why should anybody care about this? It's a really good hope. I mean, this is, this is where, we, where people point to us and say, you guys have wishful thinking. If we only had the first half of this passage, I'd agree with you. But we don't. Continuing on in Isaiah chapter 42. I, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who, who walk in it. Now, be clear here. I mean, we can often, uh, often skate over this. What God is saying is, I guarantee this. These aren't just, you know, flowery words to make us have a few extra things to have to read on a Sunday morning or in our Bible study reading. This is important. I am the Lord who has called you in righteousness. And then he talks about a few of these things. Go a little bit further down, though. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my name, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That is actually quite important for a very, very simple reason. That gives us the methodology of why we do Advent. You see, Advent isn't just about Christmas, like I said. It's about being able to understand and believe the things that God has promised and believe them because we've seen what God has already done in the past. You see, when I was a seminary student at a very liberal seminary, my teacher of Isaiah told me that there were three Isaiahs. Proto-Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Trito-Isaiah. You can drop that in a cocktail party if you want. It's nice words. But there's a, very, there's a really basic reason why people who don't believe that the Bible is true have to for, say there's a proto-Isaiah, deutero-Isaiah, trito-Isaiah. It's because when you read the book of Isaiah, if you don't believe that God is God and that God has written his word, you have a really big problem with the book of Isaiah, especially these chapters around this. Because a little bit later... Isaiah is going to do something that we don't generally see in prophets of this world. I don't know if you've watched prophecies on TV, you know, the, the Psychic Friends Network and things. They tell you stuff that's going to happen in the future in very, very vague kinds of things, kinds of ways. 
so that you can imagine it. Hundreds of years before it happened, Isaiah was told the name of the person who would actually bring the people of Israel back to Israel by name, hundreds of years in advance. And so in order to get through that, modern scholars try to say, well, they must have written it later. And we know that the first half of the book was written early, so we have to imagine that there are two books. Yeah, two books. That's what we'll assume. So we don't have to believe that God told Isaiah the things that would come to pass, even though that's actually kind of the basis of the argument in 42, verse 9. God guarantees the things he promises because his promises have always borne true in the past. In fact, that's what we're going to be celebrating on December 25th. Do you understand how many promises Jesus fulfills just by being born? And he'll keep doing it for the rest of his life. But don't just assume that because Jesus has fulfilled prophecies that there's no promise then for the future. Remember how this began. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Yet I've told you justice hasn't come yet, fully yet. It says that he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Friends, he's already, he's promised much greater than we've already received. So we can believe, because he's fulfilled the prophecies in the past, that we can look for him to fulfill them in the future. The things that have come to pass in the past are not just memories for us to be thankful for, they're things we can trust in for the future. We can look through the things that God has already done to see the things that God will do. Because God has promised these good things in the past and has fulfilled most of them, many of them, we can trust that he will fulfill the rest. There will come a day when justice will reign. That means all of those good things I said, that there will come a day when justice will reign, when relationships will be good, when there will be no more sin or death or hatreds, where we will be able to finally live without a rebellion to God. That will come. So what does this mean for us today? Why is Isaiah important today? There are two applications. First and foremost, hope in the servant. I tried not to say it too often, but the servant is clearly Jesus Christ. We know this because as prophecy fulfillment in the New Testament, they refer to back to this prophecy and point out that it is fulfilled in Christ. We know that Jesus fulfilled many of these prophecies. That's why he said to, to John the Baptist, tell people what you, tell John what you see. The blind, the blind receive their sight, the dead are raised, people are healed. Now, and I also have to say this is not just a hope in the sense of, I don't know, the way my niece hopes for a pony. 
for Christmas, or uh, the way I, f- I hope that I will have a regular gym habit in 2017. No. When we're talking about the hope that Jesus is giving us, I mean a settled, joyful expectation. You know, that feeling you have on Christmas Eve. If, at least if you are young enough to still you know, really enjoy getting presents on Christmas Day. The hope that you have knowing that there are trees, gifts under that tree. That when you wake up, there will be something there. And this hope is far more sure than even that. Because let's face it, somebody can steal the gifts tomorrow, uh, on Sunday morning. It happens sometimes. It's more sure than any hope that we have because we've seen that God has fulfilled hopes in the past and we know what he's promised and he has been faithful to this point. Friends, hope in Jesus Christ. Joyfully expect the servant, Jesus Christ. And Second of all, and this is probably very important, especially coming to about that whole thing about Christmas, the joyful expectation you have in Christmas. I don't know, have you had this feeling at, on Christmas Day at about three o'clock in the afternoon? You know, you've spent four weeks preparing for Christmas, you've been listening to all the Christmas songs, and then you've gotten your gifts, you've eaten your turkey, and about three o'clock in the afternoon you recognize it's all over. It's important to remember that Christmas is not just about Christmas. It's not just about the turkey or the dressing or the gifts or any of that. It's not even just about the fact that Jesus was born in a a manger back 2,000 years ago. It's about that because Jesus has come once and promised that he would come again, that he will come again. Prepare for that coming This period of Advent, this time of preparing for the coming of Christmas, don't just prepare for the coming of Christmas, prepare for the coming of Christ. And I don't mean just on December 25th. I mean take some time. Prepare your heart to receive Jesus Christ. Put your hope where it needs to be. And, and, And I say this with all due respect Many of us have a wrong view right now. Many of us are hoping in seriously wrong things. We have minds set on things of this world instead of things of God. And while it takes work to put, in, to put good, solid work into your life to be a better Christian, to change your point of view only takes a moment. The moment that you see